You're listening to Dirty Feet, a podcast from No More Radio. Vous écoutez le podcast Dirty Feet sur les ondes de No More Radio. Hosted by, animé par, Alison Burns, J.D. Papillon, et Stéphanie Morin-Robert. Stay tuned. We're going to move you. Coming at you live from the Fringe Club here in Toronto for the Toronto 2014 Fringe Festival. Uh, this is Allison. I'm in town uh, presenting my own work and uh, decided to take the, the opportunity to speak to some of the dance companies presenting work at the Toronto Fringe this year. Uh, so it's going to be a noisy episode. We are on site. Uh, the weather is good and bad depending on the timing so bear with us i have a, an interesting list of guests to speak to uh, including a lot of local uh, choreographers and uh, people in, involved in the dance scene here and uh, even somebody from winnipeg who's actually touring to the toronto fringe um, so without further delay let's get right into our toronto fringe episode So we're going to start off this week with uh, two ladies from Reactive Dance. I will be speaking with Amanda Pai and Randa Jones from Reactive Dance. Now, the two of you both studied dance at Ryerson University, where you met, decided that it was a good mix, kept working together, and you formed Reactive Dance in 2012, as far as I understand it. And Reactive Dance seems to uh, blend art and activism in your creations. Uh, so perhaps we could start with, with who you two are. Uh, between the two of you, you've presented work at uh, Fresh Blood here in Toronto, as well as uh, Summer Works, and also Springboard back in Montreal, which we're familiar with. Uh, upon reading the bios, I learned that uh, Amanda, you've worked uh, with Mary Schwinard Company and Rubber Band when you were doing Springboard. And I know that, Randa, you've worked uh, with uh, the Alan Kaja Company in a couple different uh, capacities mm -hmm. and still do currently. So perhaps uh, can we start there with the, with the Kaja Company, Randa, and tell us a little bit about that specifically. I'm very intrigued. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I met Alan Kaja at Ryerson in our fourth year, and he was teaching us his elevation technique, and uh, he choreographed a piece on our fourth year. And uh, then afterwards, I just kept the relationship up, and uh, he asked me to help him come out and uh, assist in teaching his elevation technique in schools and elementary schools, high schools and university and dance programs, things like that. Fantastic. Yeah. And Amanda, could you tell us a little bit more about your springboard experience over in our hometown? Yeah, um, a springboard was a great experience for me. I felt really lucky to be able to do it twice. Um, my first year, I, got, I was lucky enough to work with Marie Chouinard, which I wasn't actually her. It was Amy Shellman, who's uh, the assistant director um, or the rehearsal director of the Marie Chouinard company. She's great. She's an amazing person, and she just changed the way that I view dance entirely. And she just taught us a lot of improvisation techniques, which I was able to bring back here 
um, and sort of use with reactive or my own my own dance techniques really um, and then the year after that I had the opportunity to work with rubber band dance which was an extremely challenging physically um, because it wasn't necessarily the movement that my body was used to but by the end of it I realized that I I love that sort of movement probably than most um, and it's sort of what I'm that style is kind of what I've continued to focus on afterwards. An open question, but some of our listeners might not be familiar with kind of Ryerson's uh, specific style or, or way of training. Can you give us a, a brief overview? Mm-hmm. Yep. When you start at Ryerson, it's a four-year Bachelor of Fine Arts program. You train in mostly ballet, modern, and jazz Mostly ballet, I think in your fourth year till your, I mean in your first year till your third year you do it four times a week. Anyways, you train of those mostly um, and throughout, throughout your time at Ryerson you get different performance opportunities. It's not until your second year that you have an opportunity to perform on the Ryerson Theatre School stage. Um, in your first year you get to do choreographic projects within your own class. Um, and throughout that we have also acting classes singing you have opportunity to take musical theater um and also academics are obviously required we also took a great class which is called creative performance with sheldon rosen which was a class with the actors which i thought was one of the greatest classes that we took at that school um and we had the opportunity to just workshop things that we we had been thinking about or projects that maybe we wanted to do after we graduate um and that really helped Branda and I build our relationship not only with each other but um with actors and they sort of help inform what we wanted to say afterwards I think do you have anything to add Randa about training at uh, Ryerson it's uh it's a very intensive program um it's I think it's given us all the tools we needed necessary to uh, create reactive dance theater and um, yeah the creative performance class is great because we really found uh, something through the actors and we also had an acting class which was uh, more tailored towards dancers who didn't really have any acting training and uh, that was really special uh, Marianne McIsaac was leading that, and she was really great uh, giving us tools to work work as an actor. And we definitely incorporate that in our in all of our work. So yeah, you've been working together since 2012, and good collaborators are hard to find, and co-choreographing is not an easy thing. How do you begin to approach choreographing as a team, as a duo? Well, um, like I've said many times, Amanda and I, uh, our relationship is very special. We kind of uh, finish each other's sentences in, in real life and uh, also choreographically. And uh, usually we'll split up maybe when we're researching an idea and we'll come back and nine times out of ten we'll have the same ideas or concepts already ready to go. And uh, when we're in the studio, I mean, there's, there's different ways of choreographing. Um, usually we choreograph together or we kind of work off of each other or we'll separate, create two different phrases, come back, and then we find that nine times out of ten we're using some of the same movement phrases. And I think as uh, our company gets older, we're definitely finding um, our movement style. We're definitely really finding a, a voice in our movement now. So, yeah. 
Randa and I have also known each other since high school, um, which obviously our relationship grew a little bit once we went to Ryerson. Definitely having the same training background at uh, both Cawthra Park Secondary School, it's an art school in Mississauga, as well as Ryerson, definitely helps facilitate our relationship. Um, but it's funny, I just when she was saying that it's when we're choreographing, sometimes I'll look across the room and we're in completely different worlds, but we're in the same pose or <laughs> movement and then we just all start dying laughing because that just happens so often. But, yeah. And this for this project in particular, Gunshot, you're working with eight different performers and typically in kind of a contemporary setting, you end up having the performers contributing to the choreography. Is that definitely true in your studio? Uh, in terms of that, uh, we usually give our dancers um, creative freedom when we give them a task to complete. When uh, we feel that it's most necessary to see their personality and their character come through the movement, when that's more of the focus, we'll give them a task to explore. And uh, we kind of pick and work off of what they give us. So, yeah. I think for reactive dance theater, each of our dancers' personalities is very important to us. Um, and making sure that they not only feel comfortable enough to sort of add their own... Um, I just add themselves to our choreography that we give them. We, when we do choreograph with a structure, we want it to sort of stay that way, but, but they can add, we just want them to add their own their own emotion, their own, their own views on top of that. And I think that's really important to us, especially in rehearsal, but even more on stage, I think. Randa, you mentioned that you're starting to find your own style choreographically. Uh, could I challenge you to articulate in words what you would say your, how your style differs from maybe a lot of other dance coming out of Toronto? Um, I would say that uh, when we first... When we first started, uh, Ryerson definitely gives you a vocabulary to work with, a, a very large vocabulary. Um, I think we played with that for a bit, and now our goal is to break out of that as far as possible. Um, we're very interested in, um, in movement that comes from a real emotional and raw place. So we sort of will jive off of real life situations or even events that are happening in the world and we'll go off those physically um, and sometimes they're more physical than others but generally we sort of like to take up space and challenge our dancers physically with our choreography but there's moments that are just sort of as we call it pedestrian are sort of very human moments um, I don't know Randa do you have anything else? Um, in terms of technique, um, both Amanda and I focus a lot on uh, groundedness. And uh, as Amanda was saying, the impetus being uh, your emotional drive, um, which usually comes from right in your center. And we really try and find that with our dancers. We've also uh, focused on this idea of having a sunken, open, and vulnerable chest in all of our movement. And uh, we've seen where that we are seeing where that's taking us. Uh, perhaps to explain a little further the activism part of what you do, I would love it if you could elaborate on the work one that you. I think it's the first full-length work you created in February 2013, and this was, I believe, inspired by the Life for Health Foundation. 
and tell us a bit more about how that relates to the choreography that you ended up producing? Or if you could speak more generally about the relationship reactive dance has created between art and activism. Um, reactive dance theater, it's really important for us to sort of not close our minds just to what's happening here in Toronto within the dance community. We try to open up um, and let our work come from a place that is inspired by mass or world events. Um, when we were in Ryerson, we were really inspired by um, all of the the uprisings that were happening in the Middle East, um, and our work, Knowledge Feels Revolution, was was greatly inspired by that, and a lot of the movement, a lot of the imagery was from that. Um, then once we graduated and we started to create our first full-length work, which was called One, it was greatly tied to a foundation called Life for Health, which I learned about from a friend of mine named Fiona Lacey, and she did a lot of volunteer work with the organization. And they do, um, they do some work in the Philippines, just creating opportunities for women, uh, for them to work, to sort of make their own money, to create their own opportunities. Um, and we just wanted to explore... Um, how our dancers felt about activism themselves. But through this process, we wanted to be able to donate some money to the organization. Um, and during the show, we luckily had Leah, who is uh, the leader of the organization. She came to talk about it and formed our audience about it and um, maybe about the organization. It allowed the audience to learn about an organiza organization that they may not have known about. Um, and for this work, we are sort of going away from the mass scale world events and sort of focusing on our own personal revolutions, whatever that means on, a, on different scales for every person. So for Gunshot, it has a pretty direct kind of tagline to it. It says, sound you've never heard, pressure you've never felt, action you've never taken. It's the revolution you're about to start. And it, a lot of the dialogue has to do about you. And I'm imagining that's the you as an audience member and having kind of, kind of a transformative or an experience while watching the piece. Um, and there seems to be almost like an aggression to it or perhaps a, just an action to the piece. I don't know if you can elaborate a bit more on, on what we can expect as an audience member coming to see Gunshot. Well, I think uh, in creation of this piece, Amanda and I are both... Amanda and I were both in places in our life where... Um, we're at this turning point where we're kind of figuring out where we're going. And um, we were originally thinking we were going to remount Knowledge Fuels Revolution. Um, but then it kind of turned into uh, what we were going through. And we realized there's a lot of things that people don't address within themselves. Their own personal revolution can be something as small as I need to start being more fit or it can be something as I need to change my whole career I've been working as this for 30 years and I need to do something different and a lot of people think that these problems that they face are not um, equal to other other issues that we as reactive dance theater face and we wanted to say that no they, they are as important um, there's this there's this, uh, I guess, hashtag thing that goes around, like first world problems. And I think, um, I mean, that is definitely valid. There are definitely some serious uh, issues that are going on in other places that we don't, we don't have to f face here where we are. We're lucky enough to not to worry about where we're going to live. 
um, or when our next meal is coming. But um, that doesn't mean that our issues aren't valid either. Um, and with Gunshot, we really wanted to have the dancers explore their own personal revolutions and what they're going through currently, and also to uh, hopefully engage the audience in thinking about their own, because a lot of the time uh, we push them away because we think they're not valid or because we just don't want to deal with them because they are very scary things to deal with. I think we chose the word Gunshot also for... Um the name of our show, which actually didn't come to be probably until a few months during our, after during our rehearsal period. Um, in the show, there's this underlying feeling of something's coming or uh, just sort of this this rumbling inside of each dancer waiting to let out let out what's next in their life what they have to say what they're going to do and I think that exists inside each person especially with where Randa and I and I are at in our lives we're 23 and I think everyone our age is sort of going through this quarter life crisis um, which involves a lot of our cast members as well so gunshot sort of explains this impetus this start of this race the start of this new period in your life and can we get a, a shout-out to the performers and your composer? So our performers for Gunshot are Brittany Birchall, Nicole Desi, Rodney DeVerlis, Jesse Guerin, Chantal Mustacho, Caroline Sawyer, Stephen Smith, and Talia Quilliam. And our composer is Jeff Ferguson. And where is your performance taking place? At Randolph Theatre. And how can our listeners find out more about Reactive Dance? Uh, we have Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you want to go on Facebook, you can find us at www.facebook.com slash Reactive Dance Theater. Rand and Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today on Dirty Feet. Thank you for having us. Thank you. guest is uh, one of the performers of Momentum Dance Toronto and this company was founded in 2010 and I really love the, their whole mandate here. They were built to encourage creative dance exploration while promoting accessibility, integrity, professionalism and fun and uh, Catherine who I have here in front of me Catherine Barban actually embodies a lot of these uh, qualities in, in the fact that you, you danced a lot when you were younger and then kind of moved away from it, and now you've had the opportunity to return through Momentum Dance. Yes, absolutely. So my story is I grew up dancing in a very small studio in my hometown and really was my big passion. It's what I love to do after school every day. 
And when I started university, I found that it was very hard to find the outlets to continue dancing. Um, I took a couple of dropping classes here and there, but it wasn't until I moved to Toronto and found out about Momentum that I really fell back into the heart of it all with both classes and performance. And, and you have a background of, of dances that aren't easy to fall in and out of, uh, talking about ballet and tap and, uh, and these more classical forms that tend to require a lot of dedication. Absolutely. So we do have ba- uh, dancers from all different backgrounds. We do have some um, dancers that studied in university at either York or Ryerson or numerous other dance schools. Um, and so it's kind of like riding a bike in some degree that you do pick up a little bit of the technique back. Um, by no means am I the same level I was when I was 18. But it, it's really all about finding the right balance between the passion, the, the technique, and the performance aspects. And I think that's one thing that Momentum brings that a lot of other um, either dance schools or companies for adults in the city um, doesn't necessarily offer. One thing as a, as a patron watching a dance performance that I love to see is when people are working at their full capacity, whether or not that is a, at a professional level. But if I can tell that they have maxed themselves out in terms of what they're giving us as an audience, I think that's such an exciting thing to see. We definitely bring it all onto the dance floor. <laughs> we'll leave our sweat, sometimes blood, <laughs> on the dance stage. So we definitely, it's something that we feel very privileged to still be able to do. Uh, so we definitely leave it all out on the floor. And we hope that our audience feels that when we perform. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, too, the, the idea of fun, the idea of showing how much you love dancing when you're performing is always really enjoyable, whether you're you know, a, a, a critic or whether you have an eye for dance or not. You can always tell when somebody's enjoying themselves on stage. Exactly. And we do try to make our performances more into a show and not necessarily a recital. So we do incorporate some other art forms, be it a video that introduces the dance and kind of explains it a little bit, or an art backdrop to kind of showcase uh, the inspiration or um, set the mood for the piece as well. All right, so Momentum Dance Toronto is in its fourth season right now. Uh, how long have you been involved in the, in the company? I've just completed my third season with Momentum, so I joined in their second year. Do you have an idea of how it all got started and who's, uh, whose inspiration it was? Absolutely. So we have four amazing co-founders, uh, Sylvia Van Helden, Stephanie Busteed, Heather Renzella, and Andrea Thompson. Um, all shared a, the same passion for dance, uh, really looking for that performance-based opportunity As I mentioned, there are plenty of options in the city to take classes, but very few to actually perform and get back onto the stage. So they joined it with that common vision that you can be a highly trained dancer working in a professional environment, but still really need that passion um, and that performance ability in your life as well. So they created momentum, and here we are four years later, (laughs) going into our fifth year. Fantastic. And, and there's a, a pile of choreographers for this particular show that you're doing at the Fringe. It's called Off Canvas Remounted. It was originally produced uh, in April, last April? Yes, this past April. This past April. And uh, so how many choreographers and who are they? Oh, well, as a member of the company, you have the opportunity to choreograph if you choose to. Um, so every season we have different choreographers step up and want to produce a piece for our, our show. Uh, we do an annual show every April, May, or June, depending on theater availability. Um, this year, we have had quite a few. Um, 
So our April show, um, we've taken the inspiration of art. And so what you see on a canvas, how does that inspire you on a dance floor with bodies versus paint and canvas? So we hope that the audience kind of is taken through a gallery of dance, similar to they would at an art gallery. Um, so our choreographers, I, they've taken different visions. Um, again, there are too many to mention, um, but they're all listed on our website as well, Momentum Dance Toronto. Um, and again, as I mentioned, every year they kind of vary. Some new ones come in. Some decide to take a year off of choreogra choreogra choreographing. Um, so it really comes and goes in waves. I, I studied at Concordia University in, in Montreal, and we have a, a project that was like an inspiration project where mm -hmm. we did something very similar. You had to choose a different artist and from a different discipline, either a writer or a painter or a musician. And... Uh, interpret through dance what uh, what their work made you feel. Is that similar to this off canvas? It, it is. It's, it's similar but we left it a little bit more specific to painting. Um, however, it was very interesting to see how the chore choreographers um, were influenced by the painting. Some were influenced by what the painting represents on a more symbolic point whereas others took it a little bit more um, uh, that's the word I'm looking for. Literal? Literal. Literally. Thank you. Um, so some took it a little bit more literally with, this is a painting of this, and so this is what we're going to do. Um, Did anyone use Dega? Or would that be too evident? There might be some in our show. Oh. <laughs> Not to give anything away. So does this work similar to uh, to a showcase where several of the performers are kind of dancing in different works and there's costume changes and, and little yes. shorter pieces all composed into the hour? Yes, absolutely. So we have an hour show. I believe there are about 12 or 13 pieces within it. Um, they kind of, you know, it's art, dance. And then there is a little bit of a linking body throughout our show as well um, to kind of bring it all together. Um, yeah, we showcase various styles. We have some ballet, a little tap, hip-hop, a little bit of ballroom. So a little bit of everyone, everything for everyone. Uh, as we were mentioning before the show, before we started recording, just the idea that, that there's a lot of places to kind of, as a, as a non-professional dancer or a semi-professional dancer, to be able to, perf to, to, to dance, but to be able to perform is unique uh, almost exclusively to Momentum Dance here in Toronto. I wouldn't say it's exclusive, but the level of training that we have to still be able to perform. There are some companies that do offer performance, but um, more of a no experience necessary kind of thing. So this is just that more of a middle step between the two. Um, and again, all different styles of dance are welcomed, and we actually had a harbor on that those differences as well to kind of bring something new and refreshing to the stage versus you know straight ballet, straight contemporary, or straight jazz. So are we going to see a variety of styles within the showcase? Absolutely. Is that like, are we blending anything? Are you doing contemporary hip hop at some times? Or is it a specific, like, uh, you're going to see a jazz piece, and then you're going to see a ballet piece, then you're going to see uh, something else? I'd say it's mostly a, a, a contemporary based piece. But we do try to blend some styles and some pieces where it's appropriate. Some of our choreographers are really great at melding styles. Others like to stick to the style that they know the best. Um, our choreographers also are great at... Um, taking a piece, a, a vision, but then molding it to their dancers. So are, the, are mm -hmm. their dancers primarily contemporary based? Then they'll tweak it in such a way that it really fits the dancers as well. 
I guess I guess if you could speak a bit more of that from the perspective as being a, a dancer and kind of having a choreographer work to your abilities and mm-hmm. and uh, if you, I, I mean obviously you've trained in other places as well if you can kind of compare what that relationship is like. For sure. So as I mentioned, we do have so many different choreographers that come in and out every season um, from our company. But generally, I'd find that they always come in with a vision and they start to teach the choreography. They start to set it. But as weeks go on, if they notice that something isn't quite working, they'll, they'll find a way that will work with the dancers' bodies. Um, there are other choreographers, too, that really push you. And, you know, it may not be working for you, but it's fine because you're going to work on it. And it's going to push you outside your comfort zone and really push you to be, try to become a better dancer. So we do have a nice balance of the two among our choreographers. Um, and... Part of the, for me as a dancer in the company, the really nice thing is that there are so many choreographers. I have the opportunity to work with different styles and different styles of teaching choreography as well. There's an element too, of course, to like the exercise of dance and that how it doesn't even feel like it if you're if you're enjoying what you're doing. Um, do you do other training outside of your dance, or do you consider this kind of your your get fit as well as stay artistic? I would consider it probably about 75% of my get fit. I do try to get additional exercise just as we get older. It's harder and harder to rely on a couple hours a week of rehearsals and performance to really keep you in shape. Um, But I definitely would consider it the bulk of what I do because uh, our rehearsals push us quite a bit. Upwards of four hours sometimes straight of rehearsing. Do you imagine you'll be involved with momentum far into the future now? I certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, What is involved uh, in getting involved with uh, Momentum Dance Toronto? Sure. So there are a couple different ways you can get involved. If you're not looking for a full commitment, maybe you're just looking for a dropping class and you don't necessarily want to perform quite yet, we do offer dropping classes during our open season, which runs from early September through the spring, whenever our end of year show is. Um, And those are on Wednesday evenings and Sunday afternoon. If you are looking to get fully involved and you want to just jump right in and get on stage with us, we have auditions at the beginning of September as well. Um, The dates and details are all posted on our website as we get closer and closer to that date. Um, But we take some new members. It kind of depends on a little bit of turnover within our, our company, but we're always looking for new talent, new passion, new friends. Now, that's an interesting note to, to have auditions. Uh, as you were talking about before, there's kind of a specific middle ground between uh, professional and, and novice that your, that your company kind of sits in. Is, is there such a thing as somebody who's, who's too professional or too well-trained to be involved in Momentum? Um, that's a tricky question. I don't think we've ever really thought of it that way. What we're looking for is someone that will enjoy the stage with us. We are very much about camaraderie and teamwork as a dance company as well. So, I mean, contrary to that, we're also not looking, if you aren't the most technical dancer, but you really enjoy the stage and you have the basis and are able to pick up the choreography, we're looking for that as well. So I wouldn't say that we're looking, we would deter someone who is a very highly trained dancer. or someone that you know has a little bit of experience but is a little bit hesitant, we would definitely encourage you to come to auditions, come to a couple classes, test the waters. Um, but we definitely try to keep it multi-level. I would say I'm by no means <laughs> at the top of our 
talent grade, but we definitely like to have the different uh, styles as well and the, the uh, ability levels just to push some of the dancers or to maybe showcase some of our other hidden talents. Brilliant. Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, for joining me this afternoon. We've been speaking about Off Canvas Remounted. This is a show being brought to the Toronto Fringe by Momentum Dance Toronto. And I've had the pleasure of speaking with Catherine Barban this afternoon. So thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Oh. And one last note, uh, we're actually going to play a piece of music that's going to be involved in the show. Oh, yes. uh, did you want to just introduce the track? It's Open Gallery? Yes, so this is from a piece called Open Gallery. It is our opening piece for our off-canvas remounted show. The music is called Nothing to Fear, and it's uh, by Dexter Britton. Great, thank you very much. Thank you. dance artist that we're going to be speaking to is Alexandra Elliott, and she's actually from Winnipeg. It's the only dance company from Winnipeg that is presenting work at the Toronto Fringe this year. Uh, the company is named after Alexandra herself, Alexandra Elliott Dance, and the show they're presenting is a double bill, When All Is Said and Get Served. Now, Alexandra has been dancing since, well, she's been in school for dance at least since the age of four, and uh, followed that school. It was a school of contemporary dancers all the way through 
through until she graduated with a BA in 2004. Uh, this, of course, is back home in Winnipeg. And uh, throughout her training, she's worked with various uh, individuals such as Susie Burpee, Marie-Josée Chartier, Susan Rethorst, and Peter Bingham. Uh, so, Alexandra, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm very intrigued by this school you described briefly to me. It's a dance school that's kind of got a relationship with, with, with a high school and with a university and kind of takes you, follows you through your education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it was my, definitely, obviously, my parents that that suggested this for me, that put me in this. And I can remember back when I was four, we used to be located in this beautiful church upstairs and we would play with feathers and scarves and whatnot. So that was the very beginning. And then, yeah, all the way through to the senior professional program, a four-year program that's affiliated with the University of Winnipeg. Um, very full full schedule, full days at the dance uh, school and then evenings at the university. Um, yeah, it was an amazing experience. And uh, you make a point of pointing out that you're a contemporary dance artist. Is, that, uh, is this school exclusively for contemporary dance? Do you, do you have some classical training in there as well? Um, it, it is a contemporary dance school. Um, we did do um, ballet training. Um, never a, a little bit of point. That was challenging. Uh, I did a few ballet exams, but mostly contemporary dance. Yeah. Okay. And now you've started uh, with your own choreographic creations as of 2007 when you were working with the Young, young Lungs and uh, have since moved on to create work under your own, uh, your own name, your own company. Mm-hmm. Um, where did that transition come in for you from performing to choreographing? So... Fresh out of school, I uh, started to work with Ruth Cansfield Dance, um, and then I had a, a knee injury that took me away from dance, and I started to um, become more involved with the Young Lungs Dance Exchange, and they provided me with an incredible platform to start to choreograph um, and start to hone that skill, and there I found a new creative outlet where even if I wasn't able to move as physically as I wanted, um, I was able to begin to choreograph, and that that really sparked something for me. And can you tell us a bit more about the Young Lungs Dance Exchange? Hmm. Um, it's our 10th anniversary this year, so I was on the board for a couple years. Um, it's basically, it, it started off as a platform for um, artists. We used to have... Uh, jams with um, poets, musicians, uh, all sorts of artists. Um, Since then, it's become um, quite a specific program. So we have a research series at the beginning of the year and a full production series in the fall. Uh, So it really provides emerging dancers as well as uh, more established artists to to become involved. Um, it's, It's funded by the Manitoba Arts Council. So there's funding that can be had through those programs. And so you've presented work back in Winnipeg, you've presented work in New York even, mm-hmm. and this is going to be your first time in Toronto. Yes, yeah. Was it the luck of the draw or was it a dedicated um, direction that you wanted to be here in Toronto presenting work? Well, last September um, I received a Canada Council grant to come and be mentored by Susie Burpee. So I spent three weeks with her um, and I wanted to work on aspects of solo creation um, like set design, props, voice, costume, all those sorts of elements. 
Um, and every time I've come to Toronto, the dance community has been really welcoming and and um, exciting for me. So when I was applying for the Winnipeg Fringe, I applied also to Toronto, thinking I could do both. And um, I wasn't drawn for Toronto at first. I was on the waiting list. And because it's a specific category, there's only one um, dance international national company. And the one who had been chosen was from New York. I thought, oh, there's no way they're going to withdraw. But they did. <laughs> so now I'm here. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. So perhaps we can speak about the specific works that you're presenting, When All Is Said and Get Served. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, have both or one of these been presented previous to this presentation? Sort of. Uh, I made When All Is Said um, with a few different dancers uh, for the Winnipeg Fringe last year. And uh, it was about a 16-minute piece. And once it was done, I just knew it could go further. I knew it had more potential, more to to express. Um, so I'm, I'm working with a few different dancers this time around um, and was able to really dig deeper um, and, and bring it to the level that I wanted it to, to get to. So it's a very different feel now. Um, but there's a few aspects that are that are quite similar that some people have recognized who have seen the the production last year. But Get Served is new, and that uh, Get Served really stems from my time here with Susie. And Get Served is a is a solo. Is it a self solo? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what is hilarious and psychologically disturbing about it? <laughs> sure. So I worked in uh, two different restaurants in Winnipeg for 10 years so it was about five years ago and um, basically it all it all stemmed from me telling Susie that one of my challenges is how to work with props we were at Dover Court and there was um, a stack of six serving trays and she said well here just I'm gonna go for coffee when I get back show me 10 different things you can do with serving trays um, so that's how it all came I I would I would use the tray and become one of the customers I've served in the past. So there's six um, specific types of customers in this piece, um, and I exaggerate their their needs or their wants or their personalities, um, and that's sort of the, the the basis of the piece. And then it goes off in different directions from there. All right, and then back to uh, when all is said. Uh, now, this is this is something we've seen before, kind of the idea of, of taking ritual or tribal uh, things into into the dance world. Um, can you speak a little bit about the inspiration for that? Is that based on fact, or is this an imagined kind of tribe? Mm. Um, this this all came about. Uh, in last year's Winnipeg Fringe, I made my first solo called Morada, and uh, in it I tell uh, a story about my trip to Argentina. And um, so at that time I was working with storytelling and um, decided to somehow continue in that way but without words. So what ended up unfolding with me and three other dancers, we were uh, working in the studio together um, was I would have one person moving and expressing their 
their tale or their story while the other three of us would sort of um, huddle and bob as we listened, just watching them. So it became sort of this tribal feel with the bobbing, um, the attentive listening, and one having their their epic um, story or whatnot. So yeah, so it's it, it stemmed really from that storytelling feel. The rest just sort of unfolded. Now there, there's always this this question when you're doing double bills about how to tie them together or if there's a need to tie them together. Mm. Now being this same choreographer for both works mm-hmm. um, can you can you give us an impression maybe on what the evening will offer mm. an audience member mm-hmm. well the audience can expect uh, two very different pieces when all is said starts the evening off and it sort of lures you into this world um, very um, intense but also quite calm at first uh, and then changes over time. And then during the pause, while the, while the um, technician sets up the stage for the next piece, um, there's sort of a pause, some jazz music comes on, and the audience can sort of watch as it gets set up. And so the second piece is much more informal, and it's in its beginning I come out um, I ask the audience, I tell the audience that their server will be right with them and I'm <laughs> sort of walking around setting up chairs and and dealing with serving trays. So they're very much in contrast. Sounds like it, yeah. Perhaps you can speak a bit about uh, the rest of your cast, the other three performers. One of them is actually, uh, has studied here at Ryerson University. Yes, yes, my performers. I am so grateful to have these three. They have been completely with me from the very beginning. Um, Lise McMillan, Hilary Christ, and Janelle Hacko. Um, yeah, it's exciting for Hilary because she moved to Winnipeg two years ago. Um, so she's staying here with her sisters and, uh, and you know, showing us the ropes of Toronto. Um, so it'll be exciting to perform with her on the night that her whole fan club is here. Now, Winnipeg and Toronto may be geographically far apart, but we're all part of Canada. I'm wondering if, um, since you have had experience working in Toronto as well as working in Winnipeg, mm. can you c- compare and contrast the, the scenes, the dance communities in the cities, and mm. perhaps if there's slight differences in the work that's being produced? Yes. Um, I think coming here to Toronto when I was, was studying with Susie, um, I really became aware of how small the Winnipeg dance community is. If somebody comes to a professional class and you don't recognize them, they're not from Winnipeg. We know we all know each other, um, which is has its you know uh, great opportunities within that. For from my end, it's a very very supportive community. Um, and then Toronto, like I said, the the. Two or three times I've come to be involved in the dance community, I've felt um, very welcomed. Um, it's so exciting to meet to meet new dancers. But yeah, whereas compared to Winnipeg, sometimes I'll mention um, a choreographer or a dancer that I know has been based out of Toronto for years, and a Toronto dancer might, you know, say they've never heard of them, and I'm always surprised, thinking, "Don't you all know each other?" So, um, so it, it makes me realize how how large the the dance community is in Toronto which is exciting for me coming from such a small community 
I, I'm also under the impression that Vancouver has quite a vibrant dance community. I'm wondering if being out west, do you interact with uh, mm. with that community at all? No, I feel I feel quite far away from from Vancouver. Um, I did go in 2003 for the Edom Dance Intensive. Um, it's an amazing three week long uh, intensive with uh, Peter Bingham, Andrew Harwood, and Mark Bovin. Um, so that formed a very positive connection for me with the Vancouver community. Um, Peter Bingham has come every year to work with the students at the School of Contemporary Dancers. Um, and a lot of, I would say there's a lot of um, lifts, um, partnering in my work that has hugely been supported or inspired by his teachings. So that's my connection to Vancouver. All right. I've been speaking with Alexandria Elliott from Alexandria Elliott Dance, all the way from Winnipeg, who is presenting two works, When All is Said and Get Served, in a double bill here at the Toronto Fringe Festival. And uh, what is your venue? The Al Green Theatre. Okay, brilliant. And how can we find out more information about what you're doing these days? Do you have a website? Yes, I do. Yeah. It is aedance.wix.com slash aedance. Perfect. <laughs> and we're going to finish up this interview with a, with a track. Do you want to introduce the music that we're about to play? Sure. This track is uh, by Terry Riley. He is um, sort of known to be the pioneer of minimalist music. And uh, I was introduced to him by my boyfriend, Matthew Sawatsky. Big thank you there. And the track is called Poppy No Good and the Phantom Band. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Next up, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. I'm speaking to a representative of the Blue Dagger Theatre, a new theatre company here in uh, Toronto that's dedicated to creating new works of queer theatre and uh, that seem to speak to the contemporary queer experience. And so I am speaking with... Ray Jarvis Ruby. Ruby, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. It's great to be here on this rainy day. <laughs> yeah, it, it, the weather turned <laughs> south. Anyway, so we're talking about Concrete Kid, which is your production that's coming up at the Toronto Fringe Festival. And this is a play that you've written. Yes, so I've been working on this show for almost five years, give or take. Whoa. So a, a lengthy gestation process on this one. Uh, and then I finally got to a point where I was like, well, no, I should probably put it in front of some people and let an audience finally see some of it. So we've got some spoken word and text and dance and drag, and it's a great time. So is it fair to say that Blue Dagger Theatre was assembled to produce Concrete Kid? Yes, Blue Dagger Theatre was something I'd had in my brain for a while, and then I was like, this is the show that's going to make it happen. Okay, fantastic. And so how much of a shared experience is it with your, with your cast, your director, your, you have a set and costume designer, you have a, you have a dramaturge and a choreographer? Is this a, a whole crew of people that are working collaboratively? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can only do so much as one person, and I decided that it's better to find people that are better at what they do than what I do. Uh, so, I mean, uh, Aaron Kehoe, our director, is a phenomenally talented actor director who's one of my bestest friends and was the only person I could trust this project to uh, and then dancing I mean I I enjoy dancing I'm not a dancer I've never trained as a dancer so really needed someone with skills to make uh, make everyone look good cool so before we dive into Courtney Keir's role with the choreography and all the rest of it can you give us an overview of what the the play is actually about Absolutely. So Concrete Kid uh, follows our protagonist, Jamie. She's 18 years old, uh, is about to finish high school, and is sort of contemplating what what to do with the rest of her life. Uh, And she has uh, less than understanding parents on her own queer identity and decides that now now is the time that she finally has to to take a stand on that. And she decides to go to a gay club for the very first time. Her cousin sends her a fake ID, and she gets into a club and tries to see what what the actual world of being a queer person could be like. Uh, And it's about sort of her, her journey through that and as you were saying earlier just just that club scene being an important part of the culture uh, and I imagine this is where the the dancing comes in then yes most of it we do a little bit of dancing sort of as a teaser and then there's more most of the dancing takes place in the in the scene in the club so how come you conceived of the production involving so much dance I mean, I, when I sort of was coming up in the queer world, I found clubs are my favorite. Like, I love dancing. I think it's great. And dancing and music is such a great expression. Uh, and for me, that was a great symbol of what it could be like to be someone who didn't know anything about queer culture coming into this world and just seeing all these, like, bodies in motion and people being exactly who they are. Uh, and for me, that's always a very powerful idea. And I wanted to put that on stage, even though I don't really know a whole lot about dance, but I knew that it could do what I wanted it to do and say what I wanted it to say. Fantastic. Uh, On that note, what does your cast look like? Do you have an eclectic mix of people going on? Yeah, we do. We have have some some queers, we have some non-queers, we have some tall people. I mean, we really were trying to go with like a a variety of body shapes and types and and just sort of anybody could be in this show. Great. And do they have have training in dance or are they diving right into this? We do. Some of them have dance training. We have a few um, Randolph grads who had some some musical theater style dance training. Uh, And then we do also have a trained hip hop dancer. But the, the rest of them are just figuring it out as they go along, which I kind of enjoy. I think anybody can dance and 
it's it's nice to to watch people's untrained bodies sort of figure it out amen i love that <laughs> and the idea that yeah it's it's everybody can do it and it's very um empowering to be a mover oh yeah absolutely yeah so it's it's primarily hip-hop dance that they're doing in this production yes. yeah great so let's talk about uh Courtney a little bit and where she came from and uh, and how you got her on board with this production. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Courtney sort of came to us a bit sort of serendipitously. Um, we had a choreographer originally who then through a series of unfortunate events could no longer be a part of the project. Um, and Courtney was uh, one of our cast members, really good friends. Uh, and we were like, we need someone to come in tomorrow. And she was like, I will absolutely be there. And came in and we were like, just make them dance. And then she did it and made up this amazing choreography on the fly and took our direction and notes and made the dance in the world make so much sense. And I really appreciated her her spirit for that, that she came in and really had no idea what was going on, but rolled with us. Do you mind if I ask you about your own personal relationship with dance? I mean, you're speaking generally about how kind of how it involves the scene and how it involves empowering. And but how do you relate to dance? I mean, I love dancing. If I could go back in time and be a kid again, I wish I could have been a dancer as a kid. I think it would have been so fun. Uh, and I wish that that's something I could have had then because it took me a long time to be okay with dancing. Like, it's kind of a scary thing if you don't really know what you're doing. But now I've just decided it's great and everyone should move. And there's so much freedom in that. And I, I enjoy it a lot. And I'm, I'm a DJ. And so I love like being on the dance floor and helping people dance and music. And that's, that's sort of one of my, one of my favorite places to be. And with, with this podcast, I mean, we talk primarily about dance. We kind of approach um, being queer and, and dancing from a very different perspective. We talk to, you know, male ballet dancers and, and things like that, where, where a larger percentage of the community tends to be queer in, in dance in general. Um, is, is any of that kind of on your mind in this production? I feel like you're approaching it from a very different place. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the sort of the queer politics of dance are very powerful. And in, I think that's, that's very true that there are a lot of sort of queer men in, in the dance world. And that's sort of a lot more accepted than a queer woman, um, which is sort of the perspective that I'm coming from. Uh, and I think, I mean, I like that there, there can be different bodies in the world and that there's different bodies out there. And that's sort of how, how it could be done. I mean, I wish I could take a ballet class, but... I don't exactly the kind of person that would fit in in the ballet class, but I mean, who knows? Maybe someone in the city's doing queer ballet where I don't have to wear a tutu, but I mean, who knows? Tutus are pretty fun. I'm just going <laughs> to say I would love to take the opportunity since you mentioned that you're a DJ and that you will be actually DJing as part of the Toronto Fringe Festival. Um, and hopefully this, this episode will get aired uh, soon enough for people to hear about the, uh, the awesome party that you're hosting. Do you want to tell, tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on Saturday, July the 12th, which is the last Saturday of Fringe, uh, in the Honest Ed's parking lot underneath the Fringe tent, uh, we will be having a dance party from 10 until 4. We have extended bar until 4. Uh, DJed by me. Uh, I go by DJ Ray Ruby. Uh, and it will be a grand time. I'm going to play all your favorite Beyonce jams all night long and thankfully it'll be underground so this rain won't mean a thing yes <laughs> okay cool so i've been speaking with ruby from concrete kit uh it's a production by blue dagger theater and uh we're gonna play out with uh, actually a beyonce track do you just want to introduce what it is we're going to be listening to absolutely so this is partition by beyonce off her brand new album uh and it is without any lyrics because in the show we 
uh, decided that we wanted people to be focusing on the beat of the song as well as the dancing without any words to distract them. <laughs> no, it's not a sing-along, so we can't we no. can't sing along to it when we no. know the words. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you could. It's like karaoke track. Okay, great. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Ruby. Awesome. It's been wonderful. we are back at the Toronto Fringe Outdoor Club uh, on a sunnier day this time and we've got uh, more guests lined up. We're going to start with Melissa Watson and she is from Not Rivals or We Are Not Rivals and this company is producing the show I Was Born White at the Toronto Fringe Festival. This is definitely a multidisciplinary show and it features uh, text as well as dance and uh, you yourself have a varied background, including visual arts and music and spoken word and all the rest. So uh, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Perhaps you can flesh out that, uh, that background a little bit for us. Sure. I guess I started with visual art more when I was a kid. Um, got into poetry pretty quickly. Um, I felt it was a, the best way I could express myself. And 
Uh, later got into spoken word um, because of a good friend of mine who I, I saw do it, and it was it seemed like the next step. And, and then I got into dance and, and movement. I guess I, I got into dance and movement when I was a kid too, and just it just felt natural to do everything at once and just kind of combine as many things as possible and, and not have so much of a divide with the, with the forms of art per se. What was your window into movement? Did you start taking classes? I started as a kid with tap and jazz and hip-hop, um, but I stopped doing that around teenagehood, and I got back into it with an intensive, actually, with Il Nana Dance Collective, um, and they're a really great company that's in the community sector. Um, they offer free dance-intensive training uh, for folks, and so I did, was in their second year of that, that, that training period. Yeah. All right. Now... The, the subject matter of your show is about kind of being, uh, being born as preconceived as a white baby and then being adopted uh, and, and turning out to be of a different heritage and a different color. Um, do you want to expand on that before I go on? Yeah, yeah. So my birth mother um, believed that my birth father was, was a certain man. Um, his name was John. Um, and so did my adopted parents. They adopted me right at, from the hospital, right at birth. So they all thought that I was a white child. And my adopted mother wanted a white baby because she couldn't have children of her own. Um, and so I guess she wanted someone who looked like her, which is understandable. Um, and then later I grew into my skin and my hair. And it was about one and a half when they realized that my father was a black man instead. So they asked my birth mom questions and, and out came... Um, the answer of who my real dad was and so it's been a journey since then of of reconnecting and and I I met him five years ago so um, it's a journey for me and kind of everyone in my family to kind of come to realize where I'm from and and who my history is yeah with all my different backgrounds so and I mean the subject is is tied so intimately into into who you are and and who you are physically as well and what your what your body is and and where it came from mm-hmm. um there must be a link there in in dance I don't, is that something that you've you've thought about in the creation yeah i think that i came into dance and i really i really stepped away from dance because i didn't feel like it um told my stories the way I needed to tell them or I didn't I didn't know that I could tell stories with dance so much so it was more just movement and I didn't understand just movement and so when I got older and I realized I could tell stories with it um, the way that I told stories with spoken word uh, I began doing that and it it really opened up for me and so I really enjoy telling storytelling through the body now and I think that dance is a beautiful way to do that can you articulate what the difference is between like dancing for dance sake and dancing for storytelling for me, dancing for dance sake is fun, I think. Um, I just, I haven't done much. I haven't done much of that in my adult life um, because most of, most of the reason why I create art is to tell a story or to, to share an idea or to uh, try to instill or inspire a feeling in other people. And so I feel like because we are empathetic humans, it we connect when we when we see stories being told and, and we listen or we try to um, and so that's why I create art and and so I try to I try to always have a purpose I guess I, I play sometimes too playing is fun and it's important to explore um, your limits and push yourself um, 
but I think the storytelling aspect is the reason I do it. Yeah. And it sounds like you've you've really integrated the different elements of this work into into one. I think it's important to say too that it's it is a group work that you are you are the main character of obviously it's a personal story um, but there are, there are other characters involved can you can you give us a picture of kind of how you've integrated the, the theatrics and the movement and everything together mm-hmm. in this work mm-hmm. well I've directed the piece um, and of course writ- wrote it I guess you could say wrote it it just kind of is my life um, but the other dancers in the piece are actually um, each of my parents so uh, my three mothers my two fathers that I've had um, through my life. And the piece is kind of how I interact with, have interacted with them throughout my life um, and the conflict and the forgiveness and the, the many stages that we went through with each of them. Um, and also their humanity and the things that they had to go through um, through my life and my period of, of being that affected some of the choices they made or caused some of the choices that I'm thankful they made today. Um, so the movement is based on that and how I interact with them on stage is very much based on real life and the time progression of from childhood to now are they literally your family or or representations of they're representations so they are they are people that I chose in my community not necessarily professional dancers but professional I guess artists people that were very uh, I thought very connected to what my parents would be as as dancers i i felt immediately connected to the my dancers and uh, felt that they would tell the stories of my parents in in beautiful ways so that's why i chose them how does it feel to present such a personal work in front of an audience you know i feel like walking down the street i present my personal story to an audience but they just don't see the whole story i i think i walk through the world and people see a certain, I think it's true with everybody. I think you walk down the street and people decide who you are and people make assumptions by what they understand. Um, so me, me experiencing my life for my whole life has kind of been the story already. I've lived with my story. So this is, it's actually hasn't been that hard. It's been, I've had to take a couple extra breaths than I think I would have, wouldn't have to if it wasn't this story. But it's been really beautiful to know that people who have experienced similar stories to me will be able to see themselves possibly on stage or people that um, haven't heard much about adoption will be able to see one story out of many Um, so I'm mostly doing it for others to see this this story that um, many people experience in different ways so this is just one adoption story but there are many out there that I've never heard before as an adoptee and I would love to hear more um, and it's for also for anyone who's considering adoption and um, to see some of the questions that I've raised to my parents and some of the questions I've raised to myself. Um, so I think anybody coming to see the show could take something from it. Um, and so that's why I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to change people's minds about things. I'm trying to get people to ask questions of themselves and others. Yeah. And I guess a, a similar question is how do you interact with your, your performers as you are trying to impose or suggest uh, different, different traits of your family members onto, onto their movement or take, bring it out of what, what you've already seen that is there? Yeah, the process of creating movement is actually... We do have a choreographer, Sally, 
um, and he's been a, he's a beautiful dancer and is, has added greatly but it's also been very much from each dancer's body organically and so one of the first things we've do- we did was show me what love looks like in your body or show me what pain looks like um, and so I would give them different words or different phrases based on each parent um, and some of the things they've gone through and I would watch what it looks like for them um, and so that was where a lot of the movement came from and a lot of the the way we were able to tell the story and I think I think the dancers all really dove in really early very emotionally and so that's what's really brought this piece to life yeah so learning a little bit more about your show uh, kind of explains in part the, the whole title uh, I Was Born White which is already pretty um, bold and then when you start to understand a little bit more what's going on there it becomes even more intriguing as a title um, how did you pick that and, and what specifically does that mean to you? Well I chose it because it kind of got straight to the point of where I started um, the context I started in and the first story that was ever told to me about who I was um, my birth mother knowing me as a certain person that I wasn't and bringing me into the world as a person that I wouldn't grow up to be so and it's also I was born white is talking about yes skin color initially they thought that I was white everyone thought that I was white skin but later it grows into the idea of whiteness as a culture as a as access as expectation as privilege um, as whiteness not necessarily white skin because I was raised by a white father and a Filipino mother for most of my life because my adopted mother passed away when I was two Um, so I wasn't raised by two white parents for the most of my life but the the white power structures that I was engaged in and the the community I was engaged in was very much um, held those standards of whiteness and beauty and and privilege and power and access and I thought that I would experience those same things but I and I didn't understand when I didn't um, until much later in my life and so I didn't understand things like racism and I didn't know um, and and people didn't tell me because they also didn't know because they weren't they didn't have that experience in their life right um, so I think that's one of the important parts of the piece as well as raising some of the questions around what are the needs of black and indigenous kids and youth when when you are when you are lighter than your children, what is the responsibility there to teach them who they are and what they might experience down the road, even when it's not necessarily your experience that you had growing up? Because if, if, if you are lighter skin or, or white, you're going to have a very different experience of childhood or life than someone who's darker than you in, in the Western society. And what, what about adoption are you, are you, do you want to say? What do you want to share about adoption? Mostly, mostly that I think... It's, it's all that I've known, you know, and I would really love to hear more stories of adoption and of um, what people have experienced in foster care because I know they must be so different. In my own family, I have two cousins who um, are dark-skinned black and were adopted into white families as well, and I don't even know their stories. This is how disconnected I think we are. And so one of the projects I'm trying to launch after the Fringe is called the Where We're From campaign. And what it'll be is reaching out to adoption agencies and folks that are connected to CAS and things like that to see if I can connect some of these youth and some of these kids and some of these young adults that are going into people that might 
be also questioning their identity and where they're from. So it's a postcard campaign um, where we send out postcards to these individuals and um, it's an opportunity for them to send postcards back to each other and then be put up in a gallery or a showcase. Um, so I'm hoping that that can get started after the show to try and hear other people's stories and, and kind of be connected in other ways like that. Fantastic. Is there is there anywhere that people can get more information about the project and about Not Rivals? Uh, yeah, they can go to www.iwasbornwhite.com. Uh, they can also go to wearenotrivals.tumblr.com for any of the poetry, if, if we have writers um, or poet enthusiasts out there. Um, there's lots of material that they can take a look at before they come to the show. Um, there's also live interviews during the show, so each person's voice kind of gets a gets a gets each person gets to tell their own story as well. So, I'm looking forward to sharing that with other people. Great, thank you so much for being here. I've been speaking with Melissa Watson from Not Rivals, and her show is called "I Was Born White." And it's playing at the Toronto Fringe. What's your venue? Uh, the Robert Gill Theatre. Perfect. All right. Have a great run. Thank you so much. our series of dance at the Toronto Fringe Festival interviews. We're going to be speaking with Sarah Skinner. Uh, she is now based in Toronto, but hails from New York City, and she's producing the show Arabian Nights. It's a belly dance spectacular, and it's uh, Sarah Skinner and their sisters of Salome. Uh, so thank you very much for joining me. How are you? Good, thank you. Perhaps we can talk about uh, why you came to Toronto. Um... I wanted a change of lifestyle and to focus more of my intention on dance and New York City is very expensive to do that. So uh, looking at different cities around that I was interested in going to, Toronto had a very uh, strong art scene and I thought it would be a great place to land. Fantastic. And when you came here, was it uh, primarily to be doing belly dance in Toronto? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you, so you're, you're a teacher as well as a choreographer and dancer yourself, are you not? Exactly, yeah. Fantastic. And so is this, uh, would you call this like a showcase of your students' work, or is this something in a different context that you've put together for the Fringe? These are um, dance artists that I respect, and, and some are uh, at different levels than others. Okay, so they're not necessarily all your students. They're some colleagues, some students, some exactly. from all mm -hmm. walks. Okay, perfect. Yeah. And it's a bigger group. How, how many people are you now? Uh, the performers are 14. 14, fantastic. Mm -hmm. Hence the, uh, the Tarragon main space stage there, very large space uh, for the production. Uh, perhaps we can talk about kind of why you started uh, belly dance in the first place. It's a very uh, specific dance form. So I'm curious how you got introduced to it and how you fell in love. Well, when I was little, I was taking all different kinds of dance. And at the same 
school that I was going to, they also offered belly dance. So at age uh, 11, I started belly dancing too, and it stuck with me. It kind of uh, sang to me, and, and even though at different points in my life when I was busier or less busy, it was always calling me to it. So it's the one that stuck. Fair enough. Now, you largely choreographed the show uh, at the program notes that there are a few contributions by other choreographers in, in different sections. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And you can see um, there are different influences of different styles. There's even this section that's a little bit more uh, almost urban, I would say, in, mm-hmm. in style. Perhaps you can... Are, are these your influence or are these the outside influences that brought in different styles into the belly dance kind of bulk of the show? Um. I presented uh, lots of different styles, and I, and all of the music choices were mine. So I definitely wanted to show that belly dance has this wide range of feeling, tone, uh, tension, that it can be sweet and romantic, it can be funny and laughing, and it can be angry and hostile and angular. So that you, So that people really saw the old school stuff, the folk dancing, all the way through to crazy dubstep, you know, that, that it does, you know, kind of uh, uh, make itself available to all different personality types and all different moods that we might have. And so I definitely chose intentionally to showcase those different things. And then asking other people to uh, join in some of their input was allowing the artists in the show to have a little more say and a little more uh, something juicy for them to bite into. And, and there's, there's some experts in their field, which was really nice. Like uh, We also have a martial artist in the show, and uh, he helped us a lot with the sword play and all the killing stuff. And, and it was really fun to sit there and, and learn one of the, the katas that go with it. But, you know, I said to him, I was like, okay, and I want to do this uh, dagger thing, but I want to balance the sword on my head while I'm doing it. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun working with, with artists, even just kind of outside the field a little bit and working with some uh, ballroom dance partnerships. And that was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, you do have some pretty impressive kind of lifts and, uh, and duets happening in the in the show. Is this is this is ballroom dancing inspired kind of partnering? Yeah. So uh, when I moved to Toronto a couple of years ago, uh, I started teaching at a ballroom dance studio, belly dance, and then I got sucked into the ballroom dance world, and I'm having a great time with it. And I really realized how much I like getting thrown around. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, this this show uh, has been uh, physically challenging for me. So it's it's exciting for me to achieve these uh, beautiful lifts, and I really feel like belly dance can grow in that venue to to have partnering in it. I've seen uh, belly dance perform before where there wasn't necessarily a, a thematic thread throughout the work or or a story but this one has a very clear plot you're you're covering uh, Arabian Nights and you're you've chosen three of the stories from Arabian Nights to kind of focus on along with kind of the yeah the overarching story of Scheherazade pulling in Mm -hmm. and then telling the three stories yeah so how come you made this choice is it about uh, making it accessible is it about making it fun to perform how come you decided to make a plot or stick to what plot a belly dance has those two sides to it where there's the you you hire someone for your wedding or your party and it's uh, very entertainment driven uh, which I love doing but also I think that it's important to uh, show the theatrical side that it lends itself to and and I'm a firm believer in that belly dance is a wonderful medium to tell stories with and 
it's a it's a new trend that that um, me and a whole bunch of artists in New York started. We really started producing shows that had themes and stories, and and I just love doing it. So. Um, it seems to be a really great fit into the fringe because the fringe is bringing in an audience that likes stories. And so here, a whole story-driven audience, then they, they might check out Belly Dance and then really realize that Belly Dance has more to offer than just a party. So it's, it's really nice to be a part of the fringe. And the last time, two years ago, I picked The Little Mermaid. And so... The Little Mermaid and Arabian Nights are stories that that people are familiar with. So it isn't some strange esoteric name. They're like, oh, I don't know what that is. You know what? They know what The Little Mermaid is. They know Arabian Nights. And like, well, I liked those stories. Let me go check out this new way of seeing it. Speaking of of it being a fringe show, it's very unlike a fringe show in the production value of what you put (laughs) together. Uh, The costuming is really um, elaborate. And there's lots of costume changes, and they're really gorgeous, you know, beading and jeweled things and just just really extravagant costumes. What is the importance of these costumes in in the form of belly dance? Well, sparkle is wonderful. (laughs) Um, But I... I am a fashion designer. I went to, to FIT and graduated, and, and so I really feel there's an important visual aspect to uh, framing movement with that. And belly dance has these elaborate, gorgeous costumes with stones and layers and all that sort of stuff. So as soon as the show, The Little Mermaid, came down, we started building costumes for this show. So two years, a team of people <laughs> sewing all these costumes. I have five costume changes. The girls have a whole bunch more, too. So uh, it's really a visual feast, all the way from movement to thinking and the, the sparkle that's going on there. I believe that it took two years to put that all together. <laughs> that's amazing. I would like to talk about, or I would like you to talk about maybe kind of the this sexuality, sensuality aspect of belly dance. It's definitely present in your show, and and what, uh, and and how important that is to to your show in particular and to the form of belly dance. There's a lot of lot of conversations that people have about sex and sensuality in relation to belly dance, and and. Um, people have a lot of strong feelings about it and a lot of misunderstandings as well. Uh, you can go see a strip club show and they happen to be wearing a belly dance costume. And so people sometimes get confused that when I say, oh, I'm a belly dancer, they're like, oh, I'm cool with stripping. And it's like, mm. So there's, there's some miseducation that goes on about it, but... Um, Really, in the culture, you would have a belly dancer at your wedding with children there and children present. So it's not necessarily uh, a sexual art form. There is sensuality to it. I mean, any of the dance forms you see with a lot of hip movement and pelvic movement, people often find to be a, a sexual, sensual dance. Um, and so I think as a woman performing a dance form, uh, you can go down that road if you choose to. You can can make it sensual and flowing and, and intimate if you pull on that side of it, but you can also pull on the side of it where it's fun and bouncy, and that's definitely what I put into this show. There's there's some scenes that were, were a little over-the-top sexual just for fun, and then there's some that are bouncy and funny, and people laughed. And so um, I really like that belly dance can access all the parts of a woman including her sensuality 
And speaking of women, you also have men in your show. Yes, four was, of them. Yeah, I was very curious about uh, their backgrounds in movement. Do they do they also belly dance? Um, my ballroom dance partner, Ian, uh, he was like, you know, that might be fun to learn. So he started taking class. And uh, he's in one of the numbers, the Snake Queen. And he does a fantastic job. So he's been studying and learning it and having a good time with that. There is a, a male dance form that's very different than the, the women's dance form in Middle Eastern dance. Um, and I, I didn't have the opportunity to, to show that in this particular show. Uh, the other uh, dancer is Mentor, who has been to Blackpool. He's this amazing uh, ballroom dancer, and he's the one that I, our partner, dance with this and, and do a lot of the, the cabaret lifts and and have a good time with him, and, and he's amazing. And then the martial artist that we had, and he does a whole kata, and he gets killed, and I kill him, and da-da-da-da-da, so it's a lot of fun. And uh, I conned him into doing uh, one of the numbers, too, so he's having fun with that. And then there's Kevin Fox, who's been on Broadway for acting, and he joined in on the folk dance, which is, which is friendly to everybody learning, and uh, then he did some acting, so you know, kind of strengthened that role for us as far as storytelling. Fantastic. Uh, is there a third production on the way from the Sisters of Salome? <laughs> well, just as in you're in the middle of any production, you're saying, I'm never going to do it again. <laughs> so ask me when the show's over. Right, right. <laughs> See if you have any sewing projects on the go already. Yeah, well, I mean, I, my cast is amazing. My whole cast and crew is so on the ball and there and ready and driven and working hard it's it's so inspiring to be like wow I'm supported by a group of people who are really there and happening and I have total confidence in them and so when you have a group around you that's that amazing you're like well of course we're going to do something so you know I'm very lucky <laughs> excellent so how can we learn more about uh, this show and perhaps any future projects that you might have in the works? I have a website called shakemyday.com. And it has lots of stuff. It has all the upcoming events. It has instructional DVDs, uh, lots of information on all the costumes that, are, that I've built over the years. So you get to see all those kind of delicious kind of information on my site, shakemyday.com. Would that also be the place to go if somebody was interested in taking classes? Absolutely. Perfect. All right, thank you so much. I've been speaking with Sarah Skinner from Arabian Nights by Sarah Skinner and the Sisters of Salome at the Toronto Fringe. Thank you. For this Dirty Feet interview, we're actually having it hosted by the Dance Umbrella of Ontario. We are in their offices currently here on Parliament after a little meet and greet with the dance companies here at the Toronto Fringe Festival. 
Uh, so thank you very much, Duo, for, for having us. And I'm going to be speaking with Glory Deerling right now, who is representing the Curiosity Collective in their show Return, which is a part of the festival. Thank you so much for being here. No problem. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So the Curiosity Collective is a year or two old. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're calling it a physical theater uh, collective. Is that fair? Physical theater and dance. Perfect. Yeah. And you yourself come from a background of, of competitive dance, uh, followed by uh, studies at York University for direction and devised theater. Okay. It's creating theater from the ground up, whether it be inspired from a concept, text, or... Um, you know, found material. It's a new type of thing. It's not exactly, it's not traditional theater. So it's very different. (laughs) Not a lot of people know what it is. Fair enough. So this, this production uh, has a big, a big group behind it, which is really exciting to see. And definitely something that comes through when you actually watch the production, the, the quality of the show and the performance is, is very high. You can tell that these, these three girls doing the trio have a lot of support behind them. Yes, they sure, they for sure do. Um, so much has gone into it and we have, uh, quite a few designers on board who've helped us complete everything and make it what it is and we've all worked very hard on it so you as the director of the project return uh where does the creative process start well um it started with some research and we did some we read some well i personally read some case studies and um about uh, sort of body dysmorphia and how like Western media affects uh, the female and like just the the person's uh, rep- uh, self um, perception of who they are and uh, like based on societal sort of pressures and especially I mean predominantly through media and um, we decided to what, like we decided to explore how this. Um, shows in the behaviors of females in particular for this production. But if we were to expand on it, we might like put, I mean, add the male perspective in. Um, but it, it, it's, it's basically about how you can, you need to, I mean, people need to return to, uh, their inner child and self-acceptance and, and self-love. And this, this trio of performers are trained in both dance and theater. Yeah. And how are they involved in the process of creating the, the actual text and the movement that is, that is used in the production? Um, well, we, we, did, we devised a lot of our work from improvisations. Um, and we, we have a playwright who is also a co-director named Laura McKay. And she's a very talented playwright. And she's like um, added text for our performers um, to generate more material as well. Um, the improvisations we do in the studio are based off of um, questions, uh, such as like one of our questions, like, what does it feel like to be consumed? What does it feel like to um, not feel good enough? Or, um, you know, what is it? What do, where is your, your happy place? Where is your inner child? And the, we devise predominantly from questions because then we can, um, we can find the most genuine responses in their, their movements and in their choreography. In terms of the structure of the work, there's always um, 
there can be a challenge in going from delivering text to a purely movement kind of scene mm-hmm. and and having uh, both a choreographer on board and a pair of directors does that separate further kind of like because I, I felt it was very successful in kind of flowing to and from these states but how do you negotiate that being so many brains on the project yeah um it's it's really just we we constantly reinforce that it is about the work and it is it isn't about the personal um opinion it is more about the overall um like the overall message of the show and whatever is collectively contributed to that um that sort of process is you know whatever works so whatever works in the studio will go in kind of thing if someone is suggesting something uh that wouldn't work then it would just be kind of like almost like a democratic democratic sort of uh system of you know like deciding what should be in there um so yeah i guess i'm curious about who's responsible for transitions in that case for transitions that would be the outside eyes i mean the director's so we we would see it and then we would say this doesn't work or this works and and then make suggestions and go as we go. <laughs> uh, can you actually give us the, the names of the, the beautiful performers who did such a great job? Yes. Um, Caitlin Hutt and Alyssa Bartlett and Rebecca Bobrovskis. They're very mm-hmm. talented performers. And can we talk also about the the Curiosity Collective as a group coming together? Uh, you, you joined post uh, the creation of Curiosity Collective. Mm-hmm. What is the drive behind this collective? We um, we strive to merge text, um, dance, and even acrobatics to create evocative theater and to challenge the mind of the audience member and to um, to explore topics that some people. I guess, I mean, some just avoid exploring. Like, um, there a lot of the times uh, the scenes are kind of uncomfortable, but that's definitely the goal, and that's where, we, where we'd like to, you know, encourage the audience members to open minds and, and um, appreciate, uh, and appreciate the, the sort of underlying message, which is to, like, find self-love again. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I get the impression that it's a it's a fairly young uh, group of people. Yes. Yeah. You're kind of like emerging from university and starting yeah. your careers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wonderful. <laughs> Where do you see this growing as as a collective? Is this one of several shows that you're going to be producing? Is this a show that you want to continue to support and and show at other opportunities? Of course. Um, I mean, I think that it's a great opportunity to showcase the work of the artists in in the collective and i think that um by being a part of it they can um we can all sort of expand our our um experience in the industry and we're going to listen to a little something to to play us out and get us into the mood of the piece can you introduce the track that we're going to listen to conversation written and performed by ish and artwork Perfect. Thanks so much. We've been speaking with Glory Deerling from the Curiosity Collective and their production of Return, which is playing at the Toronto Fringe Festival. Thank you.
So that concludes our episode covering dance at the 2014 Toronto Fringe Festival. I actually had the opportunity to join Ted Fox on Evidence Radio, which is a part of CIUT 89.5 FM here in Toronto. It's a radio show dedicated to dance, very similar to Dirty Feet itself. Now you can hear the episode that I co-hosted which is uh, already archived on their website. It was recorded on Saturday, July 5th, 2014. We spoke with uh, Alexandria Elliott, who I spoke with in this episode, and also a pair of artists who are working on the show, An Ode to Dyad. Uh, Their names are Hannah Kay and Connor Spencer, and they were lovely ladies, and uh, it was great to talk to them on the episode. We also got to speak about Dirty Feet a little bit and about the show that I am presenting as a part of the Toronto Fringe Festival. So you can check that out at evidenceradio.com. That's E-V-I-D-A-N-C-E radio.com. And uh, tune in next week for a whole new episode of Dirty Feet. Dirty Feet is recorded every week at the Montreal Improv Theatre. Check them out at montrealimprov.com. Dirty Feet est produit et animé par... Produced and hosted by Alison Burns... J.D. Papillon... et Stéphanie Moret-Robert. You can find out more about our show at nomoreradio.com, follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet, and find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcast. Vous pouvez écouter tous nos épisodes sur notre site web ou vous pouvez vous abonner également sur iTunes à notre podcast. Listen to past episodes on website or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. While you're there, be sure to give us a rating and or leave a comment to help us spread the word. Tune in next week for a whole new show.